0: Hello and welcome to another episode of SBCC Vaqueto Voices, a podcast highlighting the voices that comprise our campus culture and how we're all working together to serve our students in the community at large. As usual, I'm joined by co-host Akil Hill. Hey, what's good, everybody? And today we are honored to welcome Superintendent President Dr. Kindred Murillo to the show. Welcome, Dr. Murillo. Welcome,
1: Dr. Murillo. Oh,
2: thank you. I'm so excited. This is so fun to be here the first like few weeks I'm at Santa and- Barbara City College.
1: Yeah,
0: congratulations, not only on, on, on becoming our uh, superintendent president, but also we are now as of this recording and when this episode is posted, we are past our October 1st, um, you know, vaccine requirement, you know, deadline. So we are fully in effect, you know, we, 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 we try to get the word out, we've done the best we could. And uh, I know that you've been an integral part of that, Dr. Mario, at least, at least for the last mile or wherever, whenever you, you know, became part of the process. But if you could run through kind of a little bit in terms of the the overall process or how you feel things are playing out or how you feel about about how things have gone or just just anything you wanna speak on the whole process so far. So, well, um, I came in, I think it seems like four weeks ago. So that's
2: um, about right uh, for timing. Uh, We were really heavily into looking at the implementation. And one of the things that uh, we did immediately after my arrival was we broke up some of the duties because a lot of the duties were falling heavily on um, Vice President Moss. And um, they really belonged in different areas. So we moved the things that belonged under um, our executive director of IT, moved them over there, you're responsible, you're accountable. We moved communications over to communications and said, here, you're accountable for these. And uh, Dr. Scott picked up her share of the things that deal with instruction and student affairs. So I think that really helped move, ex- move us along so that we were more organized as a team. And what I've seen is like the last couple of weeks, <laughs> I mean, they've just been rolling. I can't tell you how happy I am with how hard everybody's worked tried to ramp up communications, because when I first came in, there was a lot of concerns around vaccinations and the contact tracing. And, you know, when you think about the four pillars, I call them the four pillars of um, really being effective at controlling the transmission of COVID, you're dealing with masks, you're dealing with vaccines, you're dealing with air filtration and contact tracing. And those are the things you have to really focus on. You can see Los Angeles County's done an amazing job the last three weeks, right? So um, it's important. So happy um, the partners that we have in the constituency leaders, the Academic Senate, the Faculty Association, CSCA, our Advancing Leadership Association, um, and our President's Council, and our adjuncts, all have worked hard to work together to make sure we're centered we're centered on
0: students
1: teamwork great. makes the dream work
0: <laughs> that's right and, and it's great to hear because you know the whole thing with COVID, the whole time the last year and a half or so it really is an unprecedented kind of situation so there's not really much you can lean on in terms of kind of how you formulate your response but you nail it on the head in terms of we have had enough time to figure out some things, and those four pillars you highlight in terms of masks, vaccines, testing and contact tracing, all those things, I mean, those have proven to be effective, but the problem is there, it's a heavy lift. You know, it's, it's a lot to get going. I mean, ramping up testing and contact tracing, you know, in a small area is one thing, but it does not scale well. So it's really hard not only to get these things done, but to convince people that when you're doing it, you're doing it effectively because there is no precedent. And because they're, they're, the metrics in terms of what defines success are really hard to kind of kind of hit on the head, so so you really just kind of have to kind of get in there and try it and and have people trust. So you coming onto something new and trying to like just just trust me, so to speak, in an unprecedented situation. Like I, I do. Kind of, I, I appreciate all the work you put in, and, and I. But I don't envy your situation, to put it mildly.
2: <laughs> well, you treat it. Here's a here's a management lesson for both of you. Um, when you have a, when you have something like this that's unprecedented, that ramps up, you operate like an emergency operations center. So what I what I did the minute COVID looked really rough when I was at my prior college, I called an emergency operations center, and we ran that all the way through till I retired and that's how I treat it. We're in a team, we're figuring out what the situation is, and we're applying, we're dividing up everything we do, and we move forward. So just a heads up for, you know, dealing with those kinds of things like active shooters, um, you know, anything that's unusual that happens at a college, you just, emergency operations center,
0: and, and you also did and, another another thing you did well was kind of delegate things out and kind of spread the wealth so to speak so it didn't all fall on one person because that's the number one probably thing that leads to you know burnout etc cetera, etc cetera. so spreading the wealth in that respect was a good move as well so thank you for that i cool.
1: can also i can also see like the trickle down effects for that because i mean i will say you know the communication has been great um, um and the word has definitely have, has gotten out um and even the days that we're open i think that that the procedures around opening um, have, have been great, you know, and so um, you know, hats off to uh, you for, you know, grabbing and taking the horse by the ring. And then also um, everyone that's in president cabinet that, that dares to, to, you know, make our campus safe again and and get back to some type of normalcy. So uh, we got to give a shout out to uh, president's cabinet, you guys for your hard work as well. So we thank you for that.
2: Well, thank you. And I appreciate all of the support that everybody's giving. So, okay. So any other, now what's next?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things where planning you, in terms of these kind of plans, you, you plan for the, like you plan for the worst and then you anticipate the best and everything ends up somewhere in the middle, but like, you know, in something unprecedented like COVID, you just have to kind of keep kind of moving the target around, but yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, so in terms of, I guess, the day-to-day of a superintendent president outside of COVID. You know, you're new to the job here, I guess, so to speak, but you've, you've done it in previous places. What are Is there a way to encapsulate kind of the duties of a superintendent president, or is it really just everything under the sun as it comes to you, you know, day in and day out, just checking your emails and kind of going with the flow, so to speak?
2: You know, um, I see my job as a superintendent president as developing the people I work with to take my job. So my my job is to basically replace myself. And so then that means that the VPs and the people that report directly to me, their job is to replace themselves so that we're developing our leadership. Uh, One of the most critical components of being a leader is making sure that you're developing capability and that you are delegating what needs to be delegated to the people to run it. So when things are operating really well in an organization, the VPs are basically doing the operations. They're running the day to day, these things are moving on and you really don't have to have the superintendent president as involved um, in the processes. When you have a bunch of new people in jobs, then as a superintendent president, your job is to make sure that you help them be successful.
0: Mm.
2: That is my role is to help people be successful. The other piece that I see is so important from my vantage point is to always keep the college focused on students and that we're always student centric and we're always equity focused. So everything I do kind of lends itself toward that direction. That also means that I have to help create a culture that is diverse, equitable, and inclusive. In community colleges, we are the most diverse of all higher education, right? So if we're going to be effective and we're going to close equity gaps, then we have to have that culture that creates that environment for our students to learn. And in order to do that, we have to make sure our employees thrive. If our employees thrive, right, then it comes together with our students being taken well of. And I think that's, that's the role of a superintendent president in so many ways is keeping everybody's eye on the vision. So like how I'm gonna do that this year is we're going to engage in strategic planning We're going to make diversity, equity, and inclusion front and center in my goals. Uh, We've got to move strategically, not piecemeal, strategically through policies and procedures, updating our hiring practices to screen people in rather than screen them out, um, making sure that we are financially sustainable um, that's another piece that's critical in all of this. So I, you know, and that might include a general obligation bond, but my role will be to help assess whether that's even feasible um, or not. And if it is, then we're gonna have to prepare for that. So I see my role as being those pieces. I also, and when I interviewed with the board, I, I told them this and I, and I tell the college this too. My job is to be a bridge between the board and the college So there's trust Mm. and, and that's important. Absolutely. you know, you've got to feel like the people that are making policy and procedure, you can trust them. And they also need to feel like they can trust the employees of the college to take care of the students and the community, because remember the board is the community voice. Mm. So that's the other piece about it. So that's that I'm kind of what they call a bridge.
0: You know, I don't know if you realize how refreshing that answer is because it not only implies you know that we're, we're emphasizing diversity, equity, inclusion, but it also I see planning behind that answer because you know the last 18 months we haven't been able to plan anything. It's been kind of seat of our pants, take things as they come, see how things go. To actually hear like there's there's pieces that are kind of moving into place and they're allowed to move over time. And and the second part that really kind of kind of brings a smile to my face is the fact that you emphasize bringing people from within to kind of quote unquote, take over your job in terms of that internal promotion is something that I feel like not, not, not necessarily my SBCC. I'm talking about other places I've worked at. Uh, It's it's easy a lot of times to have like uh, someone come in, interview really strongly from outside, you know, and it's a different context and you plug them in and it's not as great a fit as you thought it would be, but their answers were so good in the interview that it, you know, it, it kind of swayed you a little bit versus some of the internal candidates where you had enough time to see all their like kind of, positive and negative, or what they are. And, and it almost hurts them sometimes in, in kind of hiring situations where internal candidates are hurt from, from so much such familiarization. So, so hearing those pieces in your answer, I mean, yeah, thank you for that. So yeah. the
2: best, to, to me, the best organizations are the one where you um, promote internally and you also bring people from the outside who bring in expertise. So it, when you mix the two, you've got the historical strength and you have new ideas and innovation, right?
1: So that's so interesting because I used to manage at Nordstrom and that was a big drive in Nordstrom was really trying to cultivate um, your your staff or your uh, from within. Uh, so that way um, people understand the culture of the place of where they work. Um, and then it also gives people the, the drive to, to kind of see themselves in, um, in other positions when you know that the institution is hiring from within, you're you're actually watching people get promoted, and you're like, okay, um, now there's maybe there's room for me somewhere um, else other than just just this position that I'm in. So, it, it my heart's kind of dancing a little bit because it's so refreshing to to hear that. Because um, you know I'm a believer um, that there's you know amazing talent at Santa Barbara City College, a lot of great people with good hearts and and sound intellect. So I'm excited just just to hear that.
0: Yeah, when I was in game design, it was because game design was a new major at the time when I was there. So folks are always coming in, in interviews, I just got my game design degree, let me come in, and they would bring them in at, at higher level, like supervisory producer positions. And the folks that had been there for years, actually doing that work in the job were, 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 hurt, were hurt, you know, from the from the influx. So seeing that mix of the two, I definitely that was the first time I really got hit with the idea of institutional knowledge as this like foundational kind of kind of perk, but it really is important. And And that balance that you speak about really is kind of, that's the ultimate goal to find that good balance of institutional knowledge mixed with those fresh ideas and folks that are actually coming with innovative mindsets to kind of do some things, you know, and apply, apply that knowledge, you know, that those kind of outside, that outsider experience kind of brings. You know, and I and
2: I don't want to make it sound like people inside don't have innovation either. Yeah. Um, true. I want, you know, part of the whole idea about building capacity mm-hmm. with your employees is making sure that the employees are exposed to outside concepts and designs and what's going on. I, I particularly love, um, I, I think I sent out a note this week that had Dr. Al Solano, who is a, a friend of mine who I've worked with deeply and he goes by continuous learner. And so it's about keeping people in that mode of learning, staying fresh on, on things and getting developed. So that's something we want, that's part of the strategy with the diversity, equity, and inclusion. You can't train people A couple times and go. Oh, we are now woke, right? Yeah, Yeah. sure. (laughs) No, it's a process. Yeah, and people have to go, and and the work has to be done internally. And you know, it takes a lot of professional development, takes a lot of reflection, and we have to really strategically plan how we help develop people so that they can reflect internally. About their commitment to diversity, equity, and
0: inclusion. I'm I'm still skeptical that it can be trained at all, but I <laughs> I I am unsure. I am I'm still unsure. But I mean, I the, because the trainings are always good and the and the knowledge is always good. But do you have to have kind of a piece of your heart already open, right? I mean, there there has to be that element of it that is receptive to taking in that information. And 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 that's the piece that I feel like is difficult to train. You know, I, I don't know how to open one's heart to, to taking in and just accepting some of these things as fact. So that, that yeah. You're always
2: gonna have the 20%. Oh, I'm sorry, Keel, yeah, go ahead. No, no. I'll, I'll say no, something after no, you. No,
1: no. I, I think like, I feel, I hear what you're saying on that, Hong. And also before we can get to the hearts, we have to get to the environment, right? And so I think a remedy in that is creating space where people feel like they belong. And even though they may have difference of ideas, that's how you, you kind of win people over is you make them feel wanted and welcomed first. And then, you know, that's when hopefully the the light or the opening occurs, you know. But if you're making people go to places that aren't welcoming and that aren't inviting, yeah, of course, they're not going to want to change because they don't feel valued or welcomed in that space because, you know, they, they may have a different idea or they may uh, have grown up in an environment that fosters certain type of beliefs that are problematic.
2: Mm hmm and that's the pieces i think that are so hard in this work and so the training is a component of it and leadership commitment is a huge piece of it because when you make when you really start moving an environment you've heard the theory of critical mass right where you move you know you have your skeptics that are never ever going to change you can just forget it it's not going to happen but you've got this group of people that sort of live in the middle you're going to have your group you know, your champions, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, and they're going to keep widening that champion group that helps start picking up some of the people that are in the middle. that start going, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I need to learn more about this. I've, I mean, I've seen it in action a couple of times now. I, I use action research. So that's my change model that I like. I diagnose, basically say, okay, here's where we are. You got to understand where you're at. Okay, this is where we want to be. Now, what interventions are we going to put in place to get there? And you're right, Han, it's about, it's really about planning and planning it out and being very intentional about what you do. So you'll never open some people's hearts. You'll never get them to see. And the other piece is, if if you create that cultural sort of feeling around it, even if people don't buy into it at least their behaviors are pretty okay because they realize they're not going to gain any traction in this environment
0: yeah yeah that critical mass does at least allow them to even if they're not willing to open their hearts at least they're they're willing to keep their mouths closed about some things as well so so it does pay off in some (laughs) ways you know so
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: All right. So, segueing a little bit from there, in terms of um, what brought you to SBCC, we, you know, and your previous experiences or, or growing up or things of that sort, wh- what kind of set you on the path that that led you here
1: today? You can be completely honest too. If you just say, if you just want to say the ocean, that's completely understood. <laughs> the weather, the weather, weather response, that's completely. But,
0: but you were you were down in San Diego in the San Diego area, right? So oh, yeah, 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 you, you <laughs> I got have... coast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I actually am half a mile from
2: the ocean in San Diego, where we live, um, and where that's our like home at the time. And so we 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 that's not the drive. I will tell you though, I have allergies, so I stay close to the ocean because I am allergic to pine trees, and uh, I found that if I live in a moist, humid environment, I. I have so many less problems. Um, So health wise, that's important for me to be close to humidity, whether it's by the ocean or not, that's not a big deal as much, although I love the ocean. But what, what brought me to Santa Barbara City College? Well, I actually came here in 2016 and interviewed for your superintendent president. And I believed then that I was the right person Um, And now I believe even more after my last four and a half years of working in community college in a very, um, and I'm going to say this with very good care, a very racially charged environment, that I feel like I have the skill set that can hopefully Help create a strategy and implement that strategy to help the college move forward in diversity, equity, inclusion, and creating an environment where everybody feels they belong. That I, I, I'm, you know, I've spent years, let's see, 14 years in pretty heavy duty training around equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, on top of that, I, I got the financial skill set to help the college. I also, if we choose to go with a bond, I have the bond background. When I applied here before, I knew that there was a very good faculty and staff and leadership at this college to get it where it was. It had been in a place of really doing good things for students and I'm all about students. So that's why I originally applied here. And that's why I'm back again, because I think I even have more experience. And I also believe that as we're emerging from COVID, I really think we can exceed our own expectations. You know, what do they say? The bones are good. Mm -hmm. College is a solid college. Let's just say that is real. It needs good leadership in a way that cares about people and cares about students, but also holds people accountable to standards. And as my former union president used to tell me, he said, You're a very caring person, and you have like a steel titanium backbone.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So you will hold people accountable to the right things Even, and you care deeply. And, and I think that is a good combination for this college.
1: It's you bad. care
2: deeply and you're going to hold people accountable.
1: It's the balance. That's what both, I hear. Yeah. Both sides of,
0: and both sides of that are very important. Like yeah. I, think of, I think of Akil's mom a lot the same way. Titanium backbone, but very caring, you know, very caring, very patient person. But if you mess, if you mess with Kiel's mom the wrong way, like, yeah, you don't want to cross any part part of that. So, So, yeah.
1: Hong used to work with my mom, uh, my mother at uh, Santa Barbara Public Library. So, yes, Hong, that is exactly who my mom is. (laughs) She doesn't take no mess, um, but at the same time will love you uh, unconditionally. So,
2: yeah. You know, it's like you can't go after... The college faculty with me as a president, you better be careful, you know, um, because to me, I have to make sure that I promote and defend my faculty and staff, and protect them, um, and take care of them. Their well-being is important to me, and um, and you have to be like a mom, right? And and yet you're gonna like nope, you you should. This is the rules. You got to stick with them.
0: Yeah, so so I guess my follow up question here: What does that what does that deliverable look like in terms of delivering on DEI work? You know, enacting a plan. Like, I I know rainbows aren't just going to appear and the the skies part, and everyone's all like holding hands together and dancing in the middle of the West Campus lawn. You never know. I I never know. I'm willing to I'm willing to believe, but at the same time, what 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 are the expectations? What, what, can, what does that deliverable look like? I just have no idea really, without getting too much in the weeds, but in, in, no, in, a, in a broad sense, yeah. You know, that's, I think that's an important question. So
2: let me tell you what it looks like for me. It means that we put and we look and we review our policies and practices that keep structural racism in place. And you'd be surprised how much policies and procedures can do that. Um, so that's one, that they change that when you're doing an EEO policy, when you're doing a hiring policy, there's a very clear statement in there that we value not only sensitivity to, I hate that phrase, I'm sorry, very honest, but I do. It has to be, you have demonstrated experience and you value diversity and equity. I don't wanna hire anybody that doesn't do that. They shouldn't be working in a college because we are diverse institutions that are supposed to be creating equitable outcomes. So that gets to the next one. We close the equity gaps. That is a very strong outcome um, that for me since 2008, when Dr. Helen Benjamin trained us on how to look at data and look at the disparate impacts on our students and our employees that we make sure that we are closing those equity gaps. And what does that look like for an employee? Okay, well, let's let's take that one step further. Um, what that looks like for an employee is structural racism. And let's get to the facts. Most low paid employees in an organization are usually the employees of color. It's real. And so that means diversifying your faculty, staff, and leadership in a way that the diversity is through the institution. So one of the things that I was most proud of in my prior college was that uh, when I got to the college, we were 83% white in the executive leadership. When I left the college, we were 75% diverse. Um, I diversified the mental management by 14% by going in and you would have thought I would killed somebody. I'm serious, I just mean this. You thought I'd killed somebody when I required diverse hiring committees. And I don't mean, oh, we're gonna go pick out one person, and put them on the hiring committee. I mean, they had to go through EEO training before they could even participate and there actual had to be diversity on the hiring committee. And we did disparate impact reports so that if there was a disparate impact on a group of people, we sent back the hiring and said, it's time to do it over again. It culminates in job descriptions being changed, in job denouncements being changed, um, all your hiring practices. But ultimately, if you're going to diversify, a college, and frankly, I, I ran stats. Every year in the fall, we ran our stats. The prior eight years before I got to the college, the college had diversified by point, get this, point six percent Now this is in a community that is primarily diverse. In three and a half years, we diversified Southwestern College by 9% overall. And the middle management was 14%. That's pretty good. That's the outcome. And then what happens is you see decision-making change because you've got diverse voices at the table,
0: right? Yeah. And I like that the base of that is something that's quantifiable. You can actually just point and say, hey, look at that statistic. It's very easy to see. There's not something about like pulling people's minds or some amorphous thing that's very hard to quantify. You have a quantifiable base that you start with, and everything leads from there. Anything else, you can hang your hat on that, just that. But then all the counter consequences of, of those kinds of things is just like, yeah, just it's a gift that keeps on giving. So that that's just what I was looking to hear in terms of because I really had no idea. I, I had no idea what the not end game, so to speak, but what the you know what the the deliverable was. And just you giving me that a quantifiable stat that's easy, like oh, just point to that and say, hey, that happened. And just seeing that whatever happens from that, it's probably going to be good. I mean, that's, yeah. Thank you.
2: It it changes the conversation. It absolutely changes the conversation when you, um, my executive leadership team, the conversations we used to have, and don't kid yourself, there's conflict in the room because you've got a lot of diverse opinions, but you have to manage the conflict to come with a good decision because, you know, when When we had to have a conversation about police and I have an African-American black VP that looks at me and starts sharing, well, you have to think about the community I grew up in and what it was like. And you have to think about how that must've felt or how it felt for us. It's like, okay, there's not been that kind of conversation here before.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: It makes a difference in how you think about
1: things. Yeah, absolutely, it does. I mean, I can remember incidents on campus um, that had occurred in years past, and you know, some of uh, people in president's cabinet were trying to tell uh, our black students that they have to report to security. But I'm like, yeah, that's true. However, do you understand the context it was as to why they wouldn't say anything to security? Right, and so, but again, right, they just didn't understand that frame of like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of students that have been put in bad situations by doing such things, and so, you know, just being able to have that awareness to be like, okay, trying to look at it through a different lens or someone else's uh, shoes is 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 absolutely critical and important to the institution.
2: Mm-hmm. It really is. And um, so I think it was a great question. I, I've got tons of exams. I go on forever because this is like, even when I was retired for six months, that's what I was doing through my consulting program or my consulting
0: business was DEI work. So. And this idea of conflict is being inherently bad. I, you know, like, I, I don't know where that's, I, I think about that book, Team of Rivals all the time, but uh, I'll look it up. I'll put it in the show notes, but the movie by Abraham Lincoln in his cabinet and how he intentionally staffed it with, you know, folks that didn't quite agree because that conflict, he, he knew there were a bunch of brilliant minds in the room and just getting them to hash things out would create, you know, good things come out of that kind of conflict when you know what the stakes are. Like no one's going to sit there and go, you know, fisticuffs are not going to ensue. You're going to have a hearty conversation and, and you should be better for it at the, at the end of it. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. You yeah.
2: know, and I, and I think that's that's part of it is that tension of conflict. So what that it's still, people are not like attacking people. It's about learning to listen to somebody's viewpoint and learning to speak your truth in a way where people can hear you. Right. So it's a skill set on both sides.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also we, we know that um, it's the, the challenges that define us, right? When everything's going great. Well, of course, everything's going to be great. But what I'm concerned about is when, when the challenges arise, what you'll find out really quickly what you really have. So it's always through the opposites. Do you really understand or you come to understand something? Uh, because when everything is going good, you're going you're gonna to be happy, you know?
0: And in terms of the most malicious types of conflict, what do you always hear? It's always the passive aggressive or behind your back. It's always the stuff that's indirect. When you have that direct conflict, you're actually having a conversation about things, able to hash it out in a setting like that, that you know is relatively, like, a relatively safe space. I mean, you, only good things can happen. You, you you know, the iron sharpens iron, as it were. So, yeah, I mean, you know. You
2: know, I have to tell you, it's, it really is true. I mean, when you learn to take your skill set and do that, you know, um, I think one of the most powerful conversations I've ever been honored to sit through was one where um, an African-American Black male and a Latino male sat there in like. Had this dialogue for, I, I think it went on for two to three hours and they let me sit in the room and listen and I got to tell you, I, I walked out of there forever changed because of the, the, the sort of the conflict that took place in a way that said I care about what you think and I also want you to hear my experience, you know, because my experience has been different than yours and not better, worse or whatever, but it's been different. And I, that's a hard piece that I think that that's what I hope out of training is to help people have conversation.
0: Yeah, and those, those kind of conversations, just knowing from, from growing up in LA and seeing how kind of those kind of interactions on the streets occurred, like that that must've been a very kind of powerful, powerful conversation. segueing a little bit um before we go on our food thing since you're from san diego i have to ask are you like a california burrito person are you putting fries with the carne asada in the burrito or or do you have a
2: (laughs) okay well i was born in new mexico so let me tell you who i am okay uh let's talk chili
0: yep all right
2: right. you know i i grew up uh albuquerque new mexico is the chili capital of the world so um we basically
0: ate chili have you talked to z as yeah another, you have to talk to z another new mexico native in z yeah 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 he was giving us the lowdown on some spots out there to get the good green chili and stuff too so i'm, I'm definitely looking forward. I gotta to, listen to that order.
2: podcast because it's yeah. hard in california to get that here
0: no he, oh, no he's he, he's saying you're not getting it here he, yeah he, he us said that's back in Albuquerque. So. Yeah, yeah i
2: have friends who actually order it and have it shipped to walk well i actually have a niece who has it shipped to washington dc and they have a big roasting party so we're bad we're bad human beings but cook, yeah <laughs> wise, um probably everything in the world but it's pretty much grounded in chilies
0: all right so i guess we will segue now that's a perfect segue into our food section so um do you want to kind of kind of kick things off for us and give us a rundown of, of any favorite meals, favorite restaurants you've been at throughout throughout your life, or any, any sort of memorable kind of kind of food memories that, that stick out to you?
2: Well, I love food. Okay, that's the first thing. In my house when I was being raised, my parents from the south. So food is a way of saying I love you. Right? Absolutely. And so, Correct. Yeah. So it's it's, we, my husband and I both love food. He, his family comes from a traditional Mexican family, kind of Mishmacan. Um I grew up with Southern cooking, you know, the cornbread and fried chicken and the whole, I mean, my God, that was, you know, meatloaf, you know, the whole Southern thing. Um, because we, you know, it's out of farming communities and things. Um, what I would say is my favorite experiences have been eating a mm, green chili stuffed sopapilla in Old Town, New Mexico. That's I love that. I love, um, you know, there's an Old Town restaurant down there that just, I can't even think of its name, but it's just creates, I, I love those pieces. Um, the problem for us is I think Michael and I can make better Mexican food than most restaurants. Um, because he has his grandmother's stuff. I got, you know, so we got, so we really have a lot of time and favorites. Um, Mole is particularly the one that I love because uh, it takes 26 ingredients and all day to make. So that's something. So if I find a really good mole restaurant and I understand there's one in San Diego and I haven't been there yet, but I also heard Santa Barbara um, there's a family who owns uh, Mexican restaurants that they have some really great mole. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: I can give you a spot right out the shot uh, in regards to mole, because I love mole as well. Um, there's a chain. It Actually, I think it originated in uh, Ventura, but they have a um, a restaurant in Santa Barbara, uh, Carne Vaca. Uh, it's right there on uh, Carrillo, right? Yeah. Their mole is amazing. I haven't, uh, I've only eaten the mole down in Ventura and in Oxnard, but it's really good. That sweet, uh, just kind of, I can't even, I'm trying to get to my taste buds right now, but I'm a big uh, fan of mole. But cornavaca and, and Santa Barbara mole is probably the best that, I, that I've, I've tried.
0: Okay, great. And and the thing about mole is it's it's so varied. Like uh, I feel like everyone has their own every family has their own mole recipe in terms of the little twist on the spices you add because there's so many spices you can throw in there. One little twist and it's a totally different flavor dimension. Yeah. You know the moles where they don't use chocolate, the mole is where they do use chocolate, what kind of chocolate they're using whether it's abuelita or they got some kind of secret plug that's getting them the good stuff. Like it's really so varied and just so delicious that it, and and whatever you serve it on it just adds that layer to it. Like mole is good, a good kind of catch all delicious, you know, food stuff. For sure. but do
1: you guys remember the scene in like Water for Chocolate where she cries, <laughs> where she cries into the mole and that was the secret? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You
2: know, hey, just everybody has their thing. My husband does his non-mole. I do mine. I like the dark mole really a lot. Mm. Mm -hmm. you know it's it's fun because you it does have that variation I think my second other food that I love and and I was just introduced to this about I have a friend who is biracial or she called herself biracial she's uh, half Filipino half white and so she brought me a bowl of fuh when I was sick and I had never had it and I'm like oh, my God, my husband and I became addicted. So um, I set out last year to learn to make it. Talk about a process.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're you're boiling bones. Yeah, you're boiling bones.
2: Yeah, you are. And so that became like, oh, my gosh. So trying to create the different variation, you know, because, you know, you have the fresh vegetables and stuff that go in. and, And so then that got me into... Um, sort of what I call this venture of all kinds of different soups. Of like I've been doing sukiyaki, mm-hmm. doing um, you know the um, just kind of going across the board with soups and trying to make like different ones from all over the world. So that's been fun.
0: I was going to say it's fall, so it's perfect soup weather. But it's like 150 degrees outside, so I guess it doesn't really fit right now. <laughs> but soup is good in hot weather too. I, I'm of the I'm of the school of the sweat is actually good for you as well. So.
1: <laughs> Hong is a, a from that school. I've I bear witness to that comment. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely
0: I definitely love to sweat when I eat. And speaking of which, I do remember at the last uh, town hall. You you mentioned that you you either you or your husband or both or I mean, you mentioned your husband specifically, but I think you as well are really into chilies. Are we talking like chilies for spice or chilies for flavor or just any chili under the sun? I know you're from New Mexico, so of course you got the spice power, but Are you you going for those like challenge chilies, like ghost peppers and stuff? Or is it, you know, just certain chilies that kind of whet your appetite?
2: Oh, no, we're we're equal opportunity across the board, you know, everything from hot. He he lends himself to more hot than I do, Um, but I work really hard. I make a red sauce and I make a green sauce. And so, you know, I ramp it up depending on what we're thinking about using it for. But yeah, we love we love the full spectrum. We went to we went to class to learn how to figure out all the chilies, all the different spices, what they mean, what you, how you should use them. So, we did a cooking class I, together. Did,
0: did you go to school in New Mexico?
2: Well, we we went flew back to New Mexico for a class now. Uh,
0: cuz I know they have that chili lab at the University of New Mexico and that I mean I always wanted to go cuz that's where they they first, you know, started doing the, the the blends, you know, in terms of like Carolina Reapers and and, yeah. bl- and blending everything with the Ghost Pepper, and so I've always wanted to go. So that's that's pretty exciting to hear.
2: Oh, they have some great cooking classes there. You should really consider it. My brothers both taught at the University of New Mexico, so um, yeah, you should go do that. I'm going to do it again.
0: I've always <laughs> wanted. To I've always wanted to drive out there, but then I I don't know how I would do driving in the snow, so I have to time the trip properly so I don't get caught.
1: You know,
2: Albuquerque's not too bad. You know, yeah. it's really pretty. Yeah, it doesn't snow too bad most of the time. And the freeways are pretty good.
1: Nice. All
0: right, Akil, you got any picks for this week? For yeah, I'm going to,
1: well, out of, uh, since it is uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, I, I think I'm going to drop uh, one of my favorites. or And it's become um, one of my favorites recently, more as the Corazon uh cocina and Hong and i actually ate there i don't know uh was it maybe a few weeks ago yeah weeks ago. yeah it's down in the public market uh in santa barbara on is it chapala chapala and victoria
0: and they and they have a second location now they have two locations one is they have one in the project kind of closer to the funk zone
1: you know they, they, oh, okay they open up a new yeah. location but then that
0: original one in the public market is their
1: their flagship yeah, yeah. so um oh, okay. It's just really good. I, I mean, I usually get my two go-tos are the the shrimp taco um, and the taco. Is it uh, the tacos norteños? Is it norteños?
0: The, the carne asada one is the norteños. yeah, the carne
1: asada. Yeah, the, yeah. The, and that's uh, the carne asada one is the carne asada with the beans. And um, what I r- really like about the place is after you finish eating, you don't feel that that sluggish feeling you know it's like you feel good the flavors uh are really good and uh you don't feel as heavy after you eat so um that's my pick for the week
0: and, and i will say this about like you know folks are kind of sometimes skeptical about quote-unquote like expensive tacos or whatever and, and this and that the, the food is is not it's not going to be like a dollar 25 for your taco but the, the quality and the craftsmanship in this food is is, yeah. is unbelievable and i also and it also to speak to the point of people sometimes feel like they, they they think certain food should be priced a certain way, which has this little bit of bias inherent to it. Like folks used to always talk, say that about Chinese food. Like when you go to a quote unquote nice Chinese restaurant, like, well, oh, why does this cost so much? I can go to Panda for yada yada. Why does this taco cost so much? I can just go to this truck and get it for a dollar. There's different levels of craftsmanship. There's different levels of ingredient procurement. There's yeah. all the, the, the whole kind of food infrastructure is, is, is universal. So so in terms of like what you get, you're getting tortillas made by hand, by hand. you're getting you're getting, you know, that the, the, the chicken that's 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 coming off the farm's antibiotics, yada, yada free. So there's just levels to this game. And then you just have to be open to all that stuff. Because I used to yeah. be that I used to be that guy, but i am skeptical, like, oh, I get 10 tacos for the price of this one. But when you take one bite of this taco, you really do appreciate the crafts, the craftsman. Not to say not to say that craftsmanship is not inherent in the other versions because it but it's just different. So you just have it to be is. kind of. Yeah. And it's and it <laughs> really was, delicious
2: so it's on my list okay um, and how it went like i told my son because i was reading about them that they opened up the the location out in the funk zone i guess yeah. that's
0: what they call it. In, in the project yeah they call it, their, their spot's called the project like in front of the captain fatty's brewery it used to be union ale but yeah
1: it's, it's technically a, i guess a gingified name <laughs> okay <laughs> no when you say when you hear the word project it's not like
0: <laughs> well no but that that little building yeah
1: yeah yeah
2: yeah, because there are buildings right down, I saw it, I was walking, my hotel's down below the college, down, um, you come down the hill toward um, Cabrillo, not Cabrillo, it's Cabrillo, is it Carrillo? Castillo Castillo, yeah. Castillo, okay, mm-hmm. Castillo, and um, you go down and you go right past that, I could walk over to, and they're right there, and I was telling, mm-hmm. I was reading about the reopening, Mm-hmm. after covid and i thought i told my son and i sent it to michael and my son and said okay here we go when bounce comes up who's my son we're gonna go to the because my son loves like really good mexican food and i love the name corbett That is that yeah. is like my favorite word
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> you won't be disappointed and then also another plug for them the agro frescos are good i usually i lean a little bit more towards the um it's the ginger, uh, is it the ginger lime with chia seeds? Um, that's what I kind of lean for the frescos. And then also they do black beans and uh, plantains that are really good too, that uh, probably get overlooked. But yeah, everything from that, that place is, is definitely, the ceviche is another go-to um, as well. So uh, you got to try it out and let us know.
0: They've added desserts. They have the leches cake and all that stuff now. So yeah.
2: Oh, they yeah. have this lesson. Oh, really? You
1: don't see yeah. that often. Yeah. That's my pick, Hong. What, what do you got for us? So this week I,
0: I want to highlight a bunch of, a bunch of spots that have opened up in my area. I know Kiel in previous episodes has kind of decried the lack of trucks and stalls and stands around town in Santa Barbara. It's kind of hard to get off the ground because of the extra infrastructure costs of doing business in Santa Barbara. But uh, I live on the West side of town, which is kind of right next to Santa uh, SBCC and uh on our main drag, San Andreas, we have about four taco trucks now, a lot to, to, to go alongside the, the stalwarts that have been here for many years, you know, Supercookas and El Zarape. Shout out to Andy Gill holding it down, the Gill family at El Zarape. They're, they do Both of those locations do great food. They're worth supporting as well. But we have uh, three food trucks and one food stand that have been opened up recently um, within within the last 18 months, probably due to COVID in some way. But, uh, yeah, we have Gloria's Gourmet, which is on San Andreas in Carrillo. We have Takarina Mena, which parks in the back of Foodland. We have the Don Paco truck, which parks in the hardware store. And then we have uh Naela's tacos or thing next to the liquor store, right on there on San Andreas and Crew next to the gas station. And I've had a chance to try all the all the food and, and it's all really good. Um, I don't want to pick because I want folks to kind of kind of try, do a little taco crawl of their own and try them all and support kind of support the small businesses in the neighborhood. There's there's no rankings here, uh, but they're all good, they're all worth trying. Um and uh, I just I just love seeing all this kind of pop up work come up. I, I don't love the circumstances because I know that that kind of pivot can be hard on folks. The most likely it was something like I had a job. I don't I know I'm doing something else. I got to pivot. We got to find a way to make money. You know, someone who grew up in those kind of situations with my family, I can see the back end of it being can be kind of stressful. But just seeing the the, the, the work that they're putting out and the food that they're putting out is, is really good. And just just the craftsmanship in their work too. Like you know we talk about Codasone with their kind of, you know, with, with their level, what they're doing with their ingredients. These folks are doing the, the one to two to $3 tacos or they got combo deals and, and it's and it's just as good. It's just different, you know? So try them all out
1: and, and give it a go. It's refreshing to hear though, because <laughs> my, my, whole, my whole stick on Santa Barbara is like, it's so hard for the food trucks to open up. And to me, that's a part of the culture, you know? Like you just want to be there with, um, you know, Supporting one, supporting the local business uh, to um, just be engrossed and in, in a culture that for me, that's other than my own and just being a feeling, eating in community. Like that's what it's about. And food trucks to me embodies that, you know, where you're standing next to someone, you know, that you probably normally you probably wouldn't even cross paths, you know.
0: And, and that's the nice thing about it is you see a lot of folks getting off work, stopping by for a burrito or a, torta, a couple tacos just sitting and being able to kind of, kind of, kind of bask in that. And, and most of these places actually do take Venmo now. So a lot of it used to be like cash only, if you don't do card. Cause you know, a lot of these things are barriers. You know, the, the POS system can be a barrier. Card acceptance can be a barrier, but there, but some of this tech stuff as bad as we say the social media and all this stuff is there are some benefits to it. And Venmo is one of them because most of these vendors, all these vendors actually take card because of a mix of venmo or other things where they can they can do that now and i do feel sometimes like oh i'm the bad guy that has a credit card but it is also nice to know that they do accommodate i also want to give one more shout out because there's on the weekends there's a tamale cart that parks in front of the gas station on san St. andrews and books Torrena, and they take venmo as well but they do banana leaf tamales not the corn husk tamales Ooh, so those
1: ones are good
0: and it's still masa based because someone asked me is it yucca yucca based because i know some folks do that style but this is still masa, but just with the banana leaf, and the and it just gives it like a more moist kind of steam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do and they do a, a frijoles one, with beans in it, with just beans and masa. And I was like, oh, I, I thought that was gonna be my least favorite one, but the way they spice the beans makes it like, oh, it really gives you like a flavorful pop. And they put the Santa, I think, the leaf mm-hmm. that that has a nice little seasoning to it. So yeah, that, that I don't know the name of that spot. I know the Venmo name that I paid, but they don't have like a you know. But I'll I'll try to get some info for the show notes, and I'll put that in for folks so we can try. You can just test all these spots out because it's really worth doing a crawl on this neighborhood it's about maybe two or three blocks total so you could theoretically hit all six spots and if you include el zarape and super Cucas you could hit all the taco truck stalls and the two stand-up restaurants and just and just be a normal kind of chill walk so you have to send me the location i will definitely will
1: Another thing that I was thinking about too, which is so unique, is that what you're eating is you're probably uh, like at the trucks or more likely than at the stands, but you're getting like generational recipes probably passed down, you know. And so you're getting to experience that. And where else are you going to really? So that's another benefit of getting out and supporting local businesses and 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 our communities, you know. Focus focus tested on families for generations, absolutely. And, exactly. And, and
0: the thing is, in terms of barriers for entry, you know, starting a business is not easy. And for folks that, you know, even if you, if you do have the wherewithal to go to the bank and get a loan, that's not easy. But if you don't have that option and you're trying to just kind of make something out of nothing, so to speak, I mean, it it, it can be very tough and your margins are super thin and your, and your margin of error is very high. So, so folks that that put themselves out there and try to do something, I mean, it's worth supporting. It, It may not be the best of whatever, whatever, but in terms of just supporting that part of the culture, of, of helping folks that are putting themselves out there and, 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 you know, putting their words out for sale. It's, t- I feel like no matter what, it's supporting. That's why I, I've tried to avoid ranking. Like, you know, in my early years, I was like always a, a best of kind of person. And then now that I met someone like Akil actually knows what the best of things are. Cause I realize as I get older, I have zero taste. Like I just eat everything. So <laughs> I need, I need something like someone like Akil actually has some curation to his kind of like, like criteria where I'm just like, kid, does it fit in my mouth? And it's good, you know? So, but, but, but even before that, I was, I realizing like, yeah, it, it's less about the best for me and more about just kind of going out there and just hitting as many as I can and supporting when I can, where I can.
2: Ooh,
0: great. All right. So we, that was our good eating segment. We didn't, I didn't preface with it with the names of the segment. Now we're going to kind of transition into higher learning, our uh, culture piece. So, uh, Dr. Muriel, you, you always put out your, um, your missives in email and you're always dropping like quotes and, and books that we should be checking out. I mean, I feel like this, this segment is right up your alley in terms of if there's anything, you know, any additional knowledge you kind of want to drop in this episode just for folks, to, something they should check out or, or, or you can just point them to your missives actually because there's a, a fount of knowledge in there as well. But if you want to kick us off again. Well, I'm a, a lifelong learner. And you've probably figured that out by
2: reading my uh, things to know and ponder, because I think it's so critical to keep learning. So what I try to do is I, you know, like when I talk to somebody and I say, okay, what, what book are you reading? Or what's your favorite book? If, if I really want to understand your culture, what should I be reading? You know, and I think, you know, that for me has been really helpful because, you know, I, I, I worked with a financial advisor uh, right before I was going to visit China. And she was, I think she ultimately wrote the book, Daughter of China. And she was working on it when I went, when I was getting ready to go. And, and I talked to her about her experience. And, and so then I went to China and then I came back. And, and then I met with her and then I read her book. So it was like, okay, it helped me so much more understand the Cultural Revolution, what happened in China, sort of this, how the culture evolved. And, and when you think about it, and this was what just, I never thought about it this way, was you know, you're talking about the longest dynasty and in culture in, in the world, right? On Earth. Is China? I mean, it, I think it's one fifth or one sixth population. But what that did for me when I when I went through that experience with her was it gave me a depth of understanding that I wouldn't have had going out and walking the streets in China. I used to get up in the morning and I would go like downtown, walk, start walking the streets of Shanghai or Beijing or guangzhou or you know the areas where I was visiting. Is I really liked the central part of China. And so I think that having that voice in my head from her really helped. So that kind of got me in this mode of, okay, how do I understand more? What influences your world and culture? You know, so one of my like books, like if we're thinking about Hispanic Heritage Month, you know, um, I had a a friend. and, well, friend, colleague. He was a colleague. I consider him a friend now. Um, that recommended to me, "Bless Me, Ultima" by Anaya by a Rudolfo Anaya, right? Mm-hmm. And and reading that book, it, it puts you in a place with your mind that you you wouldn't be otherwise. Do you, does that make sense?
0: Oh yeah, it's a great um, book.
2: Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's mm. a life lesson, right? I mean, you know, seriously, it's, it's just so amazing. Um, And the other one, I never had read Claudia Rankin and um, a a Latina colleague of mine, she was like, Oh man, you've got to read this book. And so she sent me the citizen. And so I've been like, I've been coming, you know, like her, you know, and her viewpoint of that. Um, another amazing book, mm-hmm. um, you know, that for me was like, okay, we're, we're, we're digging into how it feels here, you know, and, and frankly, I'm a huge James Baldwin fan. And I, yes. to, you know, like I read like the pieces of him in because he's so smart.
1: Yeah. I,
2: think about the world through his eyes. Right. Mm. And, um, and so I sit there in my son gave me his book where the, the different with all the different sh- stories. Um, it's, I guess I've got it up here somewhere. Um, it's the grouping and I, and I'll like read through them and then I have to go back and read through them again um, because it just, it helps you like, go, wait a minute, my experience growing up in the United States was this way. <laughs> a whole lot of other people's experience was this way. And, and, and I was brought up with a, by a working class family. My dad worked at the railroad. I mean, we were always sort of the, you know, my mom made my clothes, you know, we weren't rich, but I would say we were sort of like working class bottom of the middle class, sort of, you know, growing up. And so it was like, okay, I had it way too good considering. Um, but I think those are the things that I believe we have to experience. You know, you have to go read James Baldwin. You just need to, need to read Claudia Rankine. Um, for me, Rudolfo Anaya was just incredible. Um, spending time with Latino poets uh, we used to have the drum circle and um, Francisco Bustos used to run this drum circle and, and he would have in all these um, poets from the Latino community and they would talk about their life, they'd talk about their work, they'd talk about their activism. And I think those experiences and immersing yourself in them really can help you be a better person and help us be more empathetic. And more understanding across sort of every every piece that we need to, to, to really understand. And I think as a community college president, or even a faculty member or staff member, because we 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 serve such a diverse group of students, and, and frankly, our colleges should be more diverse. I and mean, they're getting there slowly, but we're getting there. Um, you need to have that perspective. You have to be a learner. You have to understand and, and you have to seek discussion that's different from yours. Um, you know, when I read How to Be an Anti Racist, you know, you, ah, okay, wow, I gotta go think about that for about an hour. Um, you know, one of my favorite books in that realm, and I was just trying to pull it back up, it's, um, and I think I've put a, code, a quote out there for people. I'm still here, Black Dignity in a World Made by Austin Channing Brown. Mm-hmm. That if you come yeah. from a different culture, that yep. it, it's powerful.
1: Yeah, I re- I could relate to that book so much. I read that book and it's it's a short read for, for our listeners. I mean, you can power through that really quickly. And I, I just, you know, it just, that was like, for me, that re- reached to the depths of my soul because I could just relate to so much of that.
0: Yeah. And, and I know we spoke earlier in the episode about kind of how do you open folks' hearts. And I really think that is the key piece of it is you do you do it like um, inadvertently or surreptitiously, you know, like give them a book and you say, you know, there's no, there's no kind of pretense to it. I don't want you to, I don't want you to take anything from this book. I just want you to read it. And just reading some of these works, you know, Notes of a Native Son, these these kind of books, you just naturally you can't refinish the book without gleaning some sort of insight from it. Those the books you talk about about the Cultural Revolution, the book, you know, like Bless Me, Ultima. Bless Me, Ultima is is kind of has some spiritual themes to it. You know, there's there's some mystical elements to it. As someone who grew up in a house that was very superstitious and kind of believed in these kind of mystical things, I gravitated to it immediately. But for someone who maybe is a little more skeptical, but just finish the book. You know, just finish the book, and even if you still don't believe in these kind of things, these kind of forces and mystical powers, even if you don't believe in it, you have a little bit more empathy towards folks that do. You have a little bit more of an understanding of kind of the the worldview and the lens that we that we talk about in terms of how folks can live this way. I mean, a lot of them are just a lot of them are coping mechanisms, kind of how couched into culture. You know, so they're just ways to kind of get through the day for a lot of folks. So it's not like it's not like the folks that are in these worlds prescribe these heady kind of meanings and this weight to things there's no weight to ha- to just living through your day games of the day like you you have to make it as weightless as possible so so a lot of these things are externally ascribed so so in terms of that heart opening i feel like that's that's the way to do it is like is is to try to make it un- as unconscious as possible and as natural as possible it's just you know like and that's where sometimes i feel like these trainings can be a little over overwrought i mean they're all good but but in terms of con- converting the the skeptics you know the, the choices you picked i mean it, it's such a a good a good swath of selections and in terms of in terms of the underlying message behind them there's this unifying coda of of secret knowledge you feel like you're being let in on a secret you know like you read one of these books you finish it you feel like you were let in on a secret and you need time to think about it like you say you, you need like i need an hour just like let my brain kind of reconcile what i've what i've just witnessed here because it feels special it feels like you got let in on a secret and those are those are to me are the best books the best pieces of culture and it's, it's really the best way to learn. is that kind of like secret kind of knowledge, so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's so, you know, I could go on forever. I have books and book, I read, I like books and love, you know, and, 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 and it's good when you can, um, and you can talk with somebody that can really give you, and you can have a dialogue around the particular pieces out of it, you know, um that to me helps like grounded inside so that it now becomes part of my operating procedures. You know what I mean? It's, it, it, I think I use that example about going to China and, and, and working with this lady is, is sort of that really being able to operationalize in through her eyes, what the world felt like for her.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and then going there and experiencing it from the outside coming in and, um, yeah and so that's what i try to do with my life i try to understand deeply um and i think if empathy is is critical to really breaking down the barriers and um, understanding structural racism because if you can't have empathy in that respect you can't see where these barriers have been built you know, in, in language. Yeah. I, I'm one of those people that I learned a long time ago. and I don't know where it was that you will not hear me Word. this to me is a rough word, um, subordinate. I don't use that word in my language. I don't mm-hmm. use the word superior in my language when I'm referring to, you know, I will not even hardly use the word. Like if I have to get put in a place to say, okay, yeah, I am your boss. But I would, you know, those are the kinds of things that, that create barriers for people.
0: I, I, have, I have the word master in my job description. They call me the web master. And to me it's like the worst. I mean, I just want I just want to be the web person. Can I just be the web guy even? I'll even take the gendered pronoun and be the web guy, but I just don't feel like how can you claim to have mastery over anything in this world? Like, you know, like there's I, like, like folks are teaching me something every day about everything on this planet. So I don't th- I don't think I can claim mastery of anything, but as much as I try to disavow it, it, it follows me around. So.
2: And that goes <laughs> out and think about your house. You know, so when people ask me about, oh, what's going on? And, you know, and I go, oh, you mean the, our bedroom? <laughs> I won't refer to the master bedroom anymore because it denotes the old Southern plantations. Yeah. Slavery, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: And, you know, and those are the kinds of things you have to like learn and it takes a lot, it's going to take a long time to help people understand how the language And we're all learning. I mean, we all stumble and I stumble into it every day. Yeah. You know, did I mess up by saying this? And I am truly sorry. Sometimes when I say something and I, and I will call people and apologize. I hope I didn't upset you by what I said. Yeah. Because we don't know where we stumble sometimes
0: taking the opportunity to reflect or even think about that counts for so much. So, cause a lot of us don't care if they stumble and even if they do stumble, they double down. So that that's where the, that's where the hurt really comes in. So, yeah. Um,
2: yeah. It's, you've got to be, you know, you've got to be reflective. You understand, you know, and uh, you know, I'm one of those people. I forgive easily. I forget probably quicker than anybody. Cause you know, I'm, I'm like 66 years old and my, my mind's not quite what it used to be and I'm okay with that. Um, well, but you know, it's, it's hard. It's, it, this is hard work. Racism is hard work and, and that's the bottom line, but it
0: needs to be done. Thank you for all those suggestions. I will get them all in the show notes to the best of my ability. And, uh, cause, cause yeah, sharing that kind of the, the pieces of culture that kind of move us and, and shape our lives is, is one of the, the, the goals of this podcast. I'll, I'll get all that stuff transcribed and hopefully, Folks will, will glean some, glean a little bit of knowledge off the top of all those of all those books. Thank you very much. I hope so.
2: And and actually, everybody should read um, "Anti-Racism: How to Be an Anti-Racist." I mean, everybody, I think, should read it. E- every, beyond, you know, it's just it's like a handbook for
0: not what to do. M- MacArthur Genius Grant-winning Eber Max yeah. Kendi.
1: So. Yeah. Iber Eber Max I mean. Kendi. That's right.
0: Artakil, yeah. Artakil, what you got?
1: Well, I, um, I think I've thrown this out before. I just kind of revisit. There's a couple of books um, and I got a TV show. But um, I just kind of recently revisit um, Michael Eric Dyson, Long Time Coming. Um, and, you know, just uh, the stories are, are so moving, like how he can just pin that and having conversations with um, it's basically writing open letters to, um, you know, Emmett Till is one of them. Sandra Bland's another one. Um, uh, People who have been, you know, basically have lost their lives to racism in this country. Um, So I I would really like people to kind of really channel that and really just kind of sit in it because it's so moving in a lot of ways. Uh, So that's one of the books. And then the other books, um, you know, my wife is finishing her PhD. So she's always buying books around race and um, and so I haven't started this book, but I've heard that it's really, really good. Um, from all, every, from all the places I looked, it's called um, "Inventing Latinos: A Story of Racism in America" by Laura E. Gomez. Um, she's a professor at UCLA, um, and she's written uh, actually a few other books. Um, and uh, this particular book, uh, she kind of leans in into um you know being Latino and what that means and how um you know our country kind of in some ways has led to um how our country has kind of been involved in Latino countries and driving their economies and and covertly and overtly and creating situations for people dire situations for people that would then come to America and then being labeled as you know others so I'm excited to get into that. And I, I just think that um, that's a, a book that I want to get into next. So those are the two books. And lastly, I'll say really shortly what I have been really enjoying for my uh, just pleasure is the remake of The Wonder Years um, on uh, ABC. It's only two uh, seasons in or two episodes in actually and uh i think it's wednesday night it's actually streaming on hulu as well so you can if you miss it you can always uh, stream it on hulu but man this is like this is like my feel good uh black boy joy moment where i'm just i sit there and i watch that and i just feel good it just feels good to me you know i mean it just feels like um to see like i mean it's set first of all i mean most people know because the wonder year's I was set in the 60s in, in Alabama um, and like, you know, it's just about a black family and what they're and a black childhood and what you just people have gone through during that era of time. But to me, it's just I just I just it's good just to watch something that doesn't have any negative connotations or anything else attached to it. It's just really feels good. So I would like people to tune in on that. Uh, but those are my recommendations. But, man, I'm really loving the Wonder Years.
0: I, I love the original show so yeah. much and this reboot it, it captures all the same warmth as someone who didn't have yeah. any idea what the 60s was like at all no no concept whatsoever you know my parents don't tell me stories they don't want to talk about it and stuff so so the original show and then this reboot is really good it's just mm-hmm. really warm and uh, it, it yeah and now
1: so,
2: I'll have to do that Um yeah
1: the good thing is it's only 30 minutes so it's not like you're completely engrossed all night long it's a half an hour uh and it just the, they've just done an amazing job i think fred savage is actually the producer of this one or director so you can, you just get all those feels of just being like oh your childhood um you know your parents i mean for me it just reminds me of my parents in a lot of ways so it's definitely worth uh watching
2: can I ask you real mm-hmm. quick, have you read the book? Because I've got it in my queue um, from Michael Eric Dyson. And I, I, I've i watched mm-hmm. him in a couple of webinars. So I, I followed him.
1: The Tears
2: We Cannot Stop as from White America. Have you read that?
1: I've, I haven't read that completely. I actually have it. I um, But uh, yeah, I heard, that's another really, really, really good book by him. I and mean, he's just his word usage of just the vernacular is so... I'm like, I got to, I'll be, I Google stuff and I'm like, what does that mean? You know, it's just really just a, a just an intellect, you know, just, yeah, and so, but um anything by him is that he's touched is, is, is really, really worth checking out. So, yeah. Nice. Thank you for your picks this week, Akil. What do you got for a song I got
0: two things. I got a TV show and a book so okay. my t- i'll go with the tv show first um reservation dogs it's it was originally aired on fx but now it's on who the first season just wrapped up eight episodes mm-hmm. uh taika ytt who you know did thor and what we do in the shadows he's he's big he's no really well known now but he's you know from new zealand originally i first heard him from flight of the concords you know the old an old show but yeah he because he because he does marvel movies and stuff he's pretty well known but he co-produced his show um actually with this guy named sterling harjo who's uh Uh, Indigenous person from America. You know, Taika Waititi is from New Zealand, but he's of Maori descent, so he's indigenous in New Zealand. He produced Mm. this show about four teens who live on a reservation in Oklahoma. So it's called Reservation Dogs, and it's just about kind of growing up on a reservation in Oklahoma. And the the first episode, they're 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 trying to, you know, they 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 steal a chip truck because they're trying to save money to go to California, and then from there it kind of just keeps going into why they want to go to California, and the whole series, the whole season is, is wrapped around that, but it's just, I mean, it, it's built as a comedy and there are some funny parts, but it's just a really kind of, it's really poignant because, you know, it's, it's got a, a, a mostly indigenous cast. It's got, you know, it, it, it because the, these, the, you can tell the writers and the directors and everyone is kind of steep in the culture. They, they really kind of, kind of let it all out and, sh- and show things as they are. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a really kind of nice kind of slice of life into what, what that kind of life is like. Cause I really have no idea myself whenever I visit reservations i'm always coming as an outsider i'm always you know not i'm not i'm not kind of in that in that life and just seeing what this kind of slice of life looks like i mean they add some community touches to it but there are some really kind of brutal and also poignant moments and then also just like some stark kind of realizations in terms of what their day-to-day life is like there's one the second episode you know one of the kids gets in a fight and he has to go to to get medical care at the at the reservation health clinic and just seeing what that is like and the, and the waiting in line staying there all day and just it's just a really great show and and you can tell that it really comes from come from a good place you know all the folks that have worked on the show they, they really they really imbued it with that sense of you know they they put um there's some native hip-hop artists you know indigenous hip-hop artists on that show you know the music is 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 well curated in terms of the musical selections they have i mean they 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 intersperse it with some of the language some of the the you know indigenous language for for the lakota tribes and and they, they, they really do make a point to kind of stay true to, to kind of what they're, what they're conveying. And then and, and they kind of, it, it's really well done. It's really worth watching. Eight episodes, not a long season. Season two is, is on its way, but won't be out till next year. And uh, yeah, Reservation Dogs. My book um, in, you know, Honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, I wanted to, to pick a book that was kind of close to me as I was growing up. So I did Always Running by Luis Rodriguez. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it came out in 96 and a lot of folks read it now in high school because it's one of those, like, you know, like a uh, lesson books about gang life and stuff. I read it because, you know, when I read it, it had just come out and we read it in high school because he was a local author. He made, he made, he made good quote unquote. And for me, it was, it was, a as someone who grew up in the area, you know, he went to Mark Hipple high school, which is, I didn't go to Mark Hipple high school, but I lived a block from Mark Hipple high school. So I kind of, I knew the area that he grew up in. I knew the area, mm-hmm. but he, but always running takes place. You know, like late seventies, early eighties, kind of, kind of, so to speak. It, it kind of does. It, it kind of stops right when my my whole generation of people that came from Vietnam, the boat the boat person migration of the early eighties, the book kind of stops right when we come in. So for me, it was it was a nice kind of like it was that it did have those lessons about you know finding good mentors, about trying to stay above the gang life, about about you know about, about the neighbor I grew up in. But it was really just more just to to give me a good idea of what the neighbor was like before I showed up because. I mean, for us, we only knew the neighborhood from, from the point we were there on. So I so some of the things he touches on, I, I still saw like the the gangs that he mentioned, you know, you know, Loma, Sangra and stuff, they were still very prominent in the neighborhood when I when I showed up. But in terms of just the, the dynamics at high school where he, you know, he he was getting into fights a lot with 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 white classmates. There was that that racial tension was was between, you know, Latino Latina and white folks. Whereas when I, you know, by the time we, you know, we came of age we had added that third pillar where it was Latino, Latina gangs, Asian gangs and white gangs, you know? So it was like, so seeing that evolution and it, for me, it was more just like a sociological kind of understanding of what the area was like before we showed up. But the messages there are always very powerful in terms of he was on the wrong track and he was not in a good place and he needed someone to help get him out. And he found that in his mentor, you know, Chente Ramirez, the the mentor that appears near the end of the story that, that kind of shows him you know, that there, there are other ways out of this. And, and as someone who, you know, LA is a big area. It's one of the, you know, metropolitan wonders of the world, but my mind was very LA centric. And until I went to Cal Poly to go to college, like I didn't know that there was, that I could have a different kind of mindset. Like, you know, I had, I had LA brain and it, it wasn't until I came up and got central coast brain. And now I have South coast brain that I had any idea that it could be different, you know, like, and I didn't even know what different was, Cause, cause even when I would go, when I went to, when I first went to school, I was like, well, you know, what you, you know, what are you talking about? I'm just me. And it was over time that I realized like, no, like you, you are kind of a piece. You are just, I, I, it was too, I was too kind of, yeah, in the mix and I needed that broadening. And that's, that's kind of what Luis Rodriguez kind of first kind of planted that seed was like, there are ways around it because he, he does end up traveling and moving, you know, going in across state lines and stuff and, and doing all these things. And it kind of takes that to get him out. And then he comes back. And he meets that gang member at the end of the book and he has that confrontation where he's, you know, the, he finds empathy, you know, in that, in that place and everything like that. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a classic at this point, well-deserved place. My, my wife's dad uh, runs a nonprofit in the Antelope Valley and it's done some work with Luke Rodriguez, you know, within the past five, 10 years or so. So he's still in the community doing work. Like he's just a great person. And so, but yeah, it's, it's at this point, it's a classic, but at the time when I read it, it was fresh and it was still, it still had that hit. It still hit me like that when it came out. So it was, it was just, yeah. Always Running by Luis Rodriguez and Reservation Dogs. I'll put I'll put links in the show notes.
2: Cool. What part of L.A. did you grow up
0: in? East L.A. Well, I mean, I call it East L.A., but it's technically the Western San Gabriel Valley. It's like right next to East L.A., but you know, because because in Southern California there are no borders. Like you drive and you just cross town, cross town, cross town. Like in Northern California, you can, you kind of get a little bit of a buffer between cities, so you don't know in you know in my area when you're driving and you've gone from Monterey Park to El Sereno to East L.A. It just kind of is this melange. You know, and that's and that's partly where my LA brain comes from because I I knew I, I was like I I have such a wide swath of area I we have the largest concentration of Korean folks outside of Korea largest concentration of Chinese folks outside of China largest concentration of this outside of this but what do I need to know about other other ways of living when I have it all here I have this melting pot here I didn't realize how kind of insular that thinking could still be you know because of the way the streets are you know it's just the nature of like survivalism narrows your focus you know like and and so once you once you get past that first level of survivalism, it really does kind of open the, the depth and breadth of, of life, you know, kind of, so to speak. That's a, a worthwhile quote
2: there, survivalism, narrow, yeah. um, because I think, yeah, because my husband used to teach at East LA.
0: Oh yeah, ELAC. That, and that right. technically that technically is in Monterey Park. If you look at the address, it says Monterey Park, California, but it is East LA. So, so I grew up in Monterey Park in O'Hambra, So that whole area and East L.A. College, that area specifically is really nice because we also have that Carmelita, that chorizo facility was over by there. So I would always go by there and smell like chorizo being made and ELAC and and the other tower records over there back in the day. So it was like a a cultural hub. Like, yeah. Yeah, I used to have
2: business offices. I spent a lot of time in L.A. because I worked for Southern California Edison and my offices were all over Santa Fe Springs, Alhambra. All, and
0: all. Rosemead. You got the Rosemead okay. office. Yeah, Rosemead <laughs> Rose is... You know, yeah. my, and my
2: husband's family's out of Pasadena. So, mm-hmm. you know, because he was raised in North Pasadena, which was very culturally diverse. His story oh, yeah, like awesome. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm serious. It was, just, you know, he was raised with
0: his uncle and it was just and- everybody, every ethnicity, every language. It was just... And and uh, they keep it real out there. They they'll, they'll yeah. try to tell you like Pasadena is the home of the Rose Parade, but that some parts of North Pasadena, I mean, they keep it real out there. They they'll let you know. So in terms of that street life, you see it whether you're in it or not. You at least know the rules of the game, you know. And okay. that's how I tell people all the time. Like, look at me. I, I'm not I'm not trying to pass some gang member in my past. That that's not me. But do I know how things work in the streets? Absolutely, because of because of my surroundings and where I grew up. It's just just how it goes, you know. There's, there's you no sound other like way. Here's the yeah, way, you know, yeah. Is the well, way yeah. it works and this is
2: what do. <laughs> and you know it's like i know when he takes me back when he take me back there to visit we even drove we were up there the other day to visit um uncle Lewis. um he, he passed two years ago and um we went up to see his headstone and pay our respects and we you know he can tell all these stories about you know here's this is what happened over here is what happened you know and you know I just i remember and this really hit me was telling me about when um I think it was the Watts riots were coming down and he was saying that his high he went to John Muir high school
0: oh yeah my cousins went to John Muir
2: so (laughs) he was like what was so fascinating to me was his his they kind of banded together and they said we are not going to let us tear us apart and that because they were so diverse at the high school that it was like, no, we're not going to do this piece. We're going to stay together and we're not going to participate in hating each other. And I mean, I was just taken back by it because I've seen so many other stances, you know, where we go white versus brown or brown versus black or whatever it comes out and looks like to just say, wait a minute, we're human and we're going to work together to make sure that we don't do
0: this. And I feel like a part of it is, is we had no, people have no choice. I feel right. like me. I mean, if I had a choice, I wouldn't have grown up the way I grew up, but because I did, I'm a lot better for it. So, but, but you can't force a lack of choice on somebody because that's like the worst thing you do to somebody. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the paradox in my mind sometimes where it's like, how do I recreate my life experiences without forcing them on somebody? Because if I foisted my life experience on someone, they would hate me forever because there's no, no one deserves to go through that. Uh, you know unwillingly you know like but i had no choice it was my only my only route you know day in day out was to survive and keep going and figure out a way to get through and, and you can't i mean you can't force on anybody how do i bridge that gap with folks that don't understand that element of it? you know it, you just can't so it's yeah
2: i i, yeah. I love your quote because it it's <laughs> to that whole thing you have no choice you're born and you and you have to live through it
0: yeah right now, absolutely
2: Wow, you um, both
0: are awesome to talk to. <laughs> and, and, and you know, thank you so much. Because I know we, we've kept you a little after our allotted meeting time. So <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. we appreciate
0: you taking the time and and, and dropping knowledge in us and having yeah. this conversation. Before Absolutely. we say goodbye, before we say goodbye for the episode, is there anything else you want to highlight or plug, quote unquote, plug or mention about what you're doing or what, what, what anything going on? Anything you want to mention before we say goodbye?
2: No, I think, no, this has been fun because it's engaging. You're making me think about things I need to think about over here. And, and I guess the thing I will tell you um, at the end of the interview, I'm kind of an introverted personality type where I, have, I hear things and I have to think about it before I can actually come out with something that I think is worth listening to. And so having this conversation with you now, I will take a lot of what I heard and from you and some of your recommendations and follow up and think about those and reflect on them. So thank you for, for being so yeah. like forthcoming with who you are. That,
0: that's right. the culture in a nutshell, you know, like that's, that's, right. that's, what, we're, that's what we're trying to spread here. And that's, and that's what we're kind of showing in terms of the depth and breadth and wealth that SBCC possesses in terms of the people that work here, the students that study here, the faculty that teach here. There is so much culture and so much to be had if we're willing to kind of listen and be open to taking suggestions, you know, because that's that's a, the, the extra piece, you know, is taking that in and going back to somebody like, oh my god, I checked that out, that was amazing, you know, let's let's talk about it or something, talk about it over some food or talk yeah. about it over, you know, yeah, absolutely, yeah,
1: yeah, or just you know, also the piece too, you know, just seeing you know one of your, your coworker and being like, hey, I was listening to the show, I didn't know you're into this. Now, like when you see Z, you're going to have a conversation about the hatch chili. And so that's the hope. That's the hope uh, and, the, and the drive of, of the podcast is to, to bring our, uh, the coworkers together and, and just to realize, to understand that we have more in common than what we think we, we may have in common. So I just wanted to give real quick, um, before I forget, a special shout out um, to um, our DSPS services. Um, and, um, the recent passing of Janet, uh, Janet was an amazing counselor who served ESPS. Um, I have really fond memories of her advocating for her students. And I just wanted to take a moment and just say that, um, you know, that she's, you know, touched me personally in a lot of ways. And, and so, um, I just wanted to take a moment and didn't want to end the show without, um, less acknowledging her presence and her uh all of her hard work that she has uh continued uh to instill and in, uh in our students and so i just want to say um you know just want to take a moment and, and, and honor that thank you akil yeah yeah
0: i worked with janet uh on website and other things on a hiring committee with her and she was always the smartest person in the room always always knew kind of the the right path to get to get to the right decision and
1: yeah, she was small uh, in stature, but boy, she came with it. I like—I remember I used to see her like uh, willing. She had like a cart. She would always wheel up, and uh, I just would always get the, just a the kick out of that. I'm like, she's rolling that cart in every single morning. But when she came to work, she came to work. So just, just, just a honor to have been able to um, get to know her,
0: and, and an honor to be challenged by her because you yeah. talk about conflict that makes you smarter yes having a conversation absolutely. with janet hose and, and, and going through things was that was yes yeah you, feel like a, you definitely were a better person on the other side of it. absolutely yeah wow
1: yeah so
0: so thank, thank you, Keel. you yeah and and thank you dr Mario, again thank you for thank coming you, on dr. the show Murillo. it was an honor um to have you on and we're glad we're glad you're here at spcc we hope you ya- stay for, 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 as long as you'd like <laughs> until you run me out, right? No, no one's, running, no, you. I, no I, one's running you out. After talking to you for this hour, I know no one's running you out. You run yourself out, of your own volition. So yeah, <laughs> you, you, stay as long, you stay as long as you like, make sure, make sure you do something, you know, do what you got to do and, and we'll be here for it. Well, thank you. And yeah.
2: I will, and I appreciate you and let's get some stuff done.
0: All right. And, and we'll see you next time. Y'all take care. And thanks for tuning in. Time. Yeah. Yep. This was Viquetta Voices. Bye-bye.